Any education apart from Jesus Christ is for us miseducation. And it produces not education nor an educated man, but a new race of barbarians who are today busily destroying their civilization. Humanistic education is the institutionalized love of death. Christian education, because it serves him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is the love of life. This is the Love of Life podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney. This is a topic that needs to be discussed at some point. Okay. Okay. So we're discussing what? Daniel chapter 2. The end of the world. People think in this day and age that the end of the world is nigh because of vaccine passports and totalitarian governments, right? And just the growing darkness, right? In, at least in our country, at least in America. Right. Uh, people perceive the world to be getting worse and worse. Yeah. In our own time, we can see that in in the U.S. particularly. But that's not the overarching story of history. No. That's not the overarching story of Christianity, especially if you look at history in 500-year chunks like Doug Wilson says too, um, where you can get a more accurate view. Because what are we bound by? Well, if you study if just in the last 100 years, not just Germany, but if you look at Karl Marx, if you look at Lenin, if you look at, uh, I believe his name is Rapspierre in the French Revolution, which most people, and even myself included, I didn't know a lot about the French Revolution until recently. And, I mean, you're talking about a very bloody revolution with totalitarians, or you're talking about tyrants taking over governments and killing their own citizens and people. And everyone acts like if the threat of killing... Is, or, or the threat of just being told what to do is upon us here in America, well, the end is near. This is just it. This is obviously filling biblical prophecy. And that is just not what Scripture alludes to when it talks about the end of time. Everyone thinks that the wheat and the tares must grow up together. And I say everyone is in premillennial, amillennial, and people that don't... Uh, that don't have maybe an understanding like what we did. You know, I mean, it wasn't until recently that we had an inkling truly of a an optimistic viewpoint for the end of time. My viewpoint was, well, it'll pan out in the end if things get bad enough, <laughs> if the world will just, you know, beat itself up enough, and maybe Christians too, unfortunately, will get to the end that'll fulfill some biblical mandate or prophecy and we can be in our foxholes, and then Christ can return. But nothing could be further from the truth biblically. It isn't just some uh, some delusion or 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 far reaching hope that we have have some far flung idea or notion, some fairy tale. The truth, Old Testament and New Testament, teaches. That the kingdom of heaven grows, Jesus said, like leaven. It grows slowly and steadily. It doesn't, it, it doesn't just go on the backseat of humanity, disappear, get completely drowned out. 
He told Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. The, king, the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail. Yet Christians, including the way that I viewed most of um, the end myself, I, I don't mean to insult anyone's beliefs. I, I, I really don't. But I'm just extremely passionate about what is truly revealed in Scripture about the end and about how the kingdom is going to grow and fill the whole earth. If you look at the chapter chapter two of Daniel, you have Daniel interpreting a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and I won't, I'm not going to read the whole dream, but basically he talks about various... You got to read the part you just read to me. All right. So, uh, so this is Daniel, starting in verse 31 of Daniel chapter two. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut out from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. So the stone that is cut from a mountain by no human hand, it breaks in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the silver and the gold. God himself will do this thing. The kingdom of God is the mountain. It grows and it fills the whole earth. It shall not be destroyed. It breaks in pieces all of these kingdoms. It brings them to an end and it shall stand forever. And just from this passage alone, <laughs> chronologically, if we look at history and we see that the first kingdom is Babylon, it's Nebuchadnezzar. The second kingdom is uh, Medo-Persia. 
the third kingdom is Greece, and the fourth kingdom is Rome. Out of that, out of the days, in the, in, during the days of Rome, it says, this is verse 40, 44, and in the days of those kings, which is during the time of the Romans, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And the point that you made, babe, earlier was that when, when Jesus came on the scene, the Jews thought he was establishing an earthly kingdom, a political kingdom, a political kingdom. which is not what the eschatology of, say, a, a post-mill person believes at all. We don't believe that politics is going to win the day. No, it's, it's, it's evangelism in the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's the gospel that wins the day, and it transforms politics, but that's not the start. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the people of the day when Jesus came thought he was going to be like a king. They were going to all be rulers. It was going to happen then. Jesus did establish an earthly kingdom, but he did it through believers and not a political thing. He and the Jews were shocked by that. The Jews yeah, hated that. Right. They did hate that because they wanted to be in power. But it wasn't about that. It was they, about, wanted, they thought, about okay, here's, here, finally, here is the Son of God. He's telling us he's the Son of God. And wait, he's not coming to overthrow the Romans or, or the people that are persecuting us or the, he's not coming to set up this earthly kingdom, like this established church or something, you know? And the answer is no. Jesus Christ came to save men from their sins, and he came to establish the kingdom of God. When he taught us to pray, he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom, your kingdom come on earth is a reality that will happen before the second coming of Christ. Okay, meaning what? What does that mean, Jesse? It means that the kingdom will grow and grow and grow until one day, Psalm 22 says, all the nations will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families will bow down before him. So in time, space, and history, yes. there will come a day, probably not in our lifetime, but probably there not. will come a day where the majority of the people on earth will know the Lord. And that is echoed not just in Psalm 22, but it's throughout the entire, but it's <laughs> many Psalms. Uh, Psalm, I believe, 47 talks about that. Psalm 1. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Right. Go well, to Psalm 2. So, is it in Psalm 2 or is it Psalm 1? Psalm 2. Okay. So, <clears throat> Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm about Christ, which is basically the verse that says at the end, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in, in no, you. That's not the part I was talking about. Why did the nation rage? I was talking about Ask of Me. Okay, so that's Psalm 110. Oh. No, no, no. It's right here. It's right here. <laughs> oh. Verse at, oh, right. Verse 8. Oh, so, you start here. Okay, so yes. In verse 7 and, and 2. Oh, I was thinking, when you said that, I was thinking the Lord said to my Lord, said it my right hand, oh, which, is, yeah, which is Psalm no, 110. Which is good too. So verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, which is similar to what we see in Daniel, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
But how are they dashed and how are they destroyed? It's not just in, you know, so what we have with those four kingdoms in Daniel, for instance, we have those kingdoms being destroyed. And during this time, okay, so when, when Christ is, is baptized by John, a voice comes from heaven saying, uh, you are my son, right? Mm-hmm. This is my son in whom, I, in, in, in whom I'm well pleased, God says. Uh, and in this, in Psalms chapter two, Psalm chapter two says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And I had to look up that part about the begotten because even in John, and this is sort of a, an aside, but um, John 3.16 that everybody knows, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, <laughs> which is... What? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son or only begotten son mm-hmm. in some translations. Right. But begotten, when you look that word up, it means... Like, you know, Jesse begot Levi. Like, mm-hmm. it means you had, which obviously Jesus is a member of the Trinity. He is God. He was not begotten. He was not made. But begotten meaning the first born from the dead. Yes. Like, raised. So, he's eternally God. Jesus is eternally God. Uh, that begotten is firstborn of the dead. Yes. Of the new order. Like, Adam was the first type Christ is the better Adam. He's the firstborn of eternal life of what God was doing in the story of redemption. Did I make that clear? Yes. Okay. Cause to me, when I read that, I was like, wait, begotten what? <laughs> but then I'm like, okay, that's awesome. Right. But it says in there in Psalm two, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. So like, I feel like I've always had this view that you know narrow is the way yes you will find it so that means like not a whole lot of people will be saved but if you go further on in that verse it uh, narrow is the way broad is the road leads to destruction first the audience is the jews that jesus is standing in front of right there because then jesus he would contradict himself because later on in that very chapter jesus or the uh, uh actually it's one chapter over but it's, it's the same setting he says many will come from east and west, and will sit down in the kingdom of God. And that's not verbatim. <laughs> but that's from, that's, you know. Yeah. So kind of so, the, so, the so, Jews so rejecting the Messiah. The Jews rejecting the Messiah made is... Made a way for the Gentiles. Yes. Yes. So the Gentiles will come in. They will, there will be an influx of Gentiles that we will see. There will be growth in the kingdom of God. And as many post mills have postulated now for hundreds of years... Romans chapter 11 talks about because because of the Gentiles coming in, one day the Jews will come back. The Jews will actually, it says in Romans chapter 11, they will become jealous for what they don't have. So in a relationship, in a relationship with, with Christ, they will see the error of their ways. They will see that, yes, he indeed is the Christ. The veil will be removed from the Jews' eyes. And many people in the last... Uh, several hundred years that have um, understood these passages would they would they would be in longing and prayer for the Jews specifically, mm-hmm. not the whole nation state thing and all that stuff. But to, but 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 because so many people get bogged down with that, and then the whole 1948 Israel becoming a nation, which has little to nothing to do with Romans chapter 11. We're talking about the salvation of the Jews for them coming to Christ. 
um, regardless of where they live. <laughs> so we're talking about the descendants of the Jewish people, right? And not Jewish setting up like sacrifices. No, of course not. No, that's not going to happen. Coming to Christ, no. being saved no. through Jesus, the one and only acceptable sacrifice right. for sin. Right. Okay, so, so wait, you said post-millennial. Okay. You've been throwing that, but... yeah. Like, do we need to give some context of, like, what that is? Because this is, like, a thing that we are just learning about in the last four, five, six months, maybe. Sure. And I guess it's so it's totally about end times. And yeah. my understanding of end times before was not very much. And, like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Like, right. it's so confusing. People believe so many different things, whatever, like. Revelation is so confusing. Who can understand it? Yeah. Prophecy in Daniel. Okay, it's cool, but it's weird. I don't. I don't get it. So, what really is postmillennialism? What is the view? And then, like, I guess, why does it matter? Sure. We have been talking a lot about this. Well, it comes from Revelation twenty, and unfortunately, the three positions, the three eschatological positions, are premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Postmillennialism basically postulates that we are in the millennium, the thousand years, although it's not a literal millennium, as it says in Romans or um, Revelation chapter 20. So it's not a literal thousand years, but we are in the millennial reign right now of Christ at this moment. Because why? How do we know we're in that reign? How do we know we're in the reign? Yeah, how do we know that Christ is reigning now? Well, <laughs> if you look at Matthew, when he rose from the dead... All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, Christ said. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. And as you read the epistles in either uh, whatever chapter one you want to go to, because we're always in chapter one for everything. <laughs> if you want to go to Ephesians chapter one, Colossians chapter one, especially Colossians chapter one, all things are under Christ's feet. All dominion has been given to Christ. All authority has been given to him. By his death, burial, burial and, resurrection. and resurrection. Right. And right. then we see that he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Yes. And what's the scripture in Corinthians? There and are. So, read. so yes, yes. So if you want to, actually, what I wanted to read was, first, I want to read Psalm 110, okay. because it coincides with 1 Corinthians 15. Okay. So Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When Christ ascends to the Father, the fa- basically Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father until he makes his en- in- in- until his enemies are a footstool for his feet. So, if we turn to First Corinthians, if I can find First Corinthians, <laughs> where are you? So, if we turn to First Corinthians chapter fifteen, wish I had it marked. <laughs> Okay, so here's 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, so it says in verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Talking about Christ. Talking about Christ. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, again, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under under his feet. He's reigning now, so he is reigning, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So Jesus is Lord, not just of people who invite him into their hearts to be their personal savior. Right. He is Lord of all. He is Lord, Lord of, of all. everything. He's Lord of everything now. And what he did when he died on the cross and rose again was he purchased the salvation of the nations. Yes. Not like meaning nobody's going to go to hell, but meaning that he is slowly redeeming yes. the world. Postmillennialism is not universalism, nor does postmillennialism... Uh, promote the idea that truly at even a certain point in history, literally every person, every single person, 100% is going to be saved. There might be a few holdouts. Right. But at some point in actual human history, Mm -hmm. you will look across the world and you will see most people are Christians. The institutions that they form, Mm -hmm. the schools, the political realm will be based on God's law. People will Love the Lord yes. and be serving him. But it's important to note here when you say that. It's important to note this is not done through force. This is not done through political means. This is not done through an army. This is this is a work of the Spirit of God. This is God himself doing this. Through promoting the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel, which is what we are told to go do. Why do we go and proclaim and make disciples of the nations? Because because. All authority has been given to Christ. Yeah, and so it's not just... Here and now and in heaven and on earth. Because of that, that is why we go make disciples. That's, that, that is that in the, in the name of Christ, who has all the authority, can we go off and talk about this on our podcast and proclaim it mm-hmm. and tell it like it is and it is true and then talk to our friends or family or neighbors about it and say, look... He is the Lord of the universe. You don't know it, but he is your Lord. Yeah. You may not have made him Lord of your personal heart or your life. Like what we grew up here, you know, that, that was kind of the interesting thing. We, we grew up with, not entirely, but it, it seemed like, it seems like especially here in the West or in America, salvation is this individualistic personal experience. Just ask Jesus in your heart. Just be cool with your homeboy. Like we drove, we drove by a sign tonight, picking up ice cream with the kids, and the sign said something to the effect of, "What did it say? Stay cool stay, with Jesus." What is that? What? Stay cool with Jesus. It's I'm what? Not sure. Anyway, it's no. He's the Lord. Well, you do not just a- of your personal self or your personal existence. Right, but there's two things that happen, right? Because you do personally come to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of Jesus. Absolutely. That you're a sinner. Yes. That you, that sin requires death and that Jesus came, was the perfect, lived a perfect sinless life, died in your place. Yes. So you acknowledge that, you accept him, you understand that he covers your sin. His sacrifice was for you. So it is an individual, personal thing, but it's not just an individual personal thing right it's bigger than that yes it's both and yeah so the and is what's the bigger it is personal yeah it's also it's universal in that if christ's lordship is not just over my little house with my little life and my dog and my you know oh but you know these these buddhists over here or these mormons or these jehovah witness whatever like these people don't believe in jesus as lord so, you know, he's Lord of your life, but he's not really Lord of the universe. Like, no, he's Lord of, 
he's he's still their Lord. He's yeah. not now not in salvation. Obviously, they still need to repent, come to know the Lord as he is. They still need to see him for as he is, right? Yeah. As he is. You know, but so, he's still Lord over them. He's still So if you if, if we live in America, <laughs> which we do, if we live in America and the president of the United States is let's just say he's John Smith. Okay. Just for, you know, kicks and giggles cuz people we all freak out about who's the president, you know, no matter, wh- who he is. no matter what side you're on. So anyway, the president is XYZ candidate, he becomes the president. It's John Smith. Okay, John Smith is the president. It doesn't matter if you are a Republican, Democrat, Independent, or whatever. If you are an American citizen, your president, regardless if you love him or hate him or don't think much of him, he is that president. He is the president of that nation, of this nation. Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, now reigning and ruling above everyone and every single thing. Above all princes, kings, kingdoms, and presidents, Jesus Christ is Lord now. So our role as believers is to declare this victory that not only we just have in Jesus and we go sing about on Sunday, which is wonderful in and of itself, by the way, I'm not demeaning that. It, it, is, it is something that is, it is a, it is universal. It is bringing people to the knowledge that he is the Lord of the universe. Because I always understood the Great Commission like... You just have to go tell everybody. You know, like right. As soon as everybody on the earth has heard the gospel, even if you're just like, hey, Jesus died for your sins, and you move along, if if you've said it and they've heard it, great. Yeah. They, it counts or whatever. But it's not. It's not just that we'll go and proclaim the gospel to every single person on the face of the earth. Yeah. It's that people, believers will go and proclaim the gospel and teach all nations obedience. That implies that they will repent They'll believe and they'll be disciples. Yes. It's more than just every single person will hear it, but that the vast majority of people will be converted. And what's so cool is that since God gave us the Great Commission, I have all, Jesus says, I have all authority. It's been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Like that means it's going to work, it's going to be effective. His will, He intends for people to hear the gospel respond in repentance and belief. Yes. So there's like this power to doing what God's called us to do and what he wills. Yeah. He wills for all men to know him, to come to him. Yes. So we proclaim what is that he is Lord of all, that he offers redemption and it's going to be effective. Yeah. I mean, people's hearts are hard and God has to quicken them, but we're not called to do it because maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't. Yeah, We're right. called to declare it because he wills for it yeah. to be done. Yeah. And this is and, and 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 the proclamation of the gospel is not just left to our own strength. We're told to go do it, but we do it in the power and the might that he equips us with. And salvation is a work of the spirit. So we're not even doing the work of the salvation. <laughs> We're literally message boys and girls proclaiming the good news. And making disciples, bringing people alongside, showing them not just not just saying, "Hey, you know, repent, believe, and then run away," right? <laughs> right. That's not making a disciple. We want to make disciples. Um, I did want to read real quick Daniel chapter seven because this is totally in conjunction with what we're talking about and with the time period that we're in. So Jesus Christ, when he ascends to he, this is this verse is misconstrued um, by a lot of 
um, uh, well-meaning believers. Christ, when he ascends, he ascends to glory to the Father to sit at his right hand as we have established. In verse, uh, in chapter 7, verse 13 of Daniel, it says, this is Daniel, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, if you talk to most Christians today, there's just this weird chronological understanding that somehow we've got to be vaporized or something. We've got to, some Christians will talk about a rapture, which you, we're not going to go down that rabbit trail. We don't have time for that right now. <laughs> some Christians talk about, you know, basically, you know, the, the church just has got to be persecuted until the end for some weird reason. I don't know where, I don't know where they see that. Honestly, I really don't get it because here we have not only Christ telling Peter, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail over the, over the church, but we also have that the kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And it's not some man-made earthly kingdom that we're, that we're looking at here in Daniel. This is the kingdom of God. The growth on the earth will grow as a mustard seed. It says uh, that Jesus said in Matthew, and it grows in, in, and it grows and it grows like leaven. It gets, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It rises and it rises and it rises. It doesn't stop. There's no point in which the kingdom's just going to, okay, well, you know, uh, this technology is going to vaporize people or this particular tyrant is going to come in and they're not going to be able to spread the gospel anymore. Or what, you know, like, that's never going to happen. Not because I say it, by the way, not because I'm adamant about believing something. It's because the word of God pre- teaches this. This is what the word of God teaches. But wait, are you saying that means that no Christians are going to face persecution? Absolutely not. Christians will. They do. They have. That will. That could That could continue for a very, very long time. So I, the I, progression of people becoming believers will happen slowly over time. There might be periods of darkness in mm-hmm. history. There might be periods of persecution for believers. We might see persecution in our lifetime. Absolutely. But eventually, slowly the kingdom will grow. Absolutely. And there yes. will be this glorious time even on the earth. Yes. Okay. Yes. We look forward to, to, to those days. So wait, why does it matter how we live now or that we believe that or... If, if we're probably not going to see this cool thing happen in our lifetime, like, so why not just sit back and wait? Well, one, we're commanded not to. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that's, I mean, first and foremost, that is the biggest reason we're commanded not to. In fact, no matter what eschatological position one takes, they're still, if they're believers in Christ, you're still commanded to go preach the gospel mm-hmm. and to make disciples of all nations. That's still in effect and in play. What the optimist or the post-mill belief system is in scripture is one that says, especially as we look in today's culture and we look at the degradation of our society and the sin of our world, we see a world that's dark and grim and that probably has a lot longer to go. Well, I talk about David Livingston or... Because the missionary movement, what we do today matters. What you and I do, even if we're not going to be alive to see this time, why does what we believe or even our actions, why do they matter today in light of that truth? 
because we're a part of that growth and that expansion of the kingdom. We're not, as we, as I used to kind of think, we're not just waiting for Christ to beam us off this rock and to get us out of here and to judge the world. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved. Isaiah, in the famous Christmas passage where it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. So his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Prince of Peace. Everlasting Father. Wait, wait. Oh, yes, true. (laughs) But this is the part part I wanted to hit. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. It says it right there. It's talking about Christ. When Christ is born into this world and he lives 33 years, dies, is, is risen again, the increase of his government, the increase of his kingdom continues to grow and to flourish. It's everywhere. The, <laughs> the optimistic outlook of scripture is everywhere. And in the last several months, as, I, as we have taken this journey into reading all these books, listening to guys that are, you know, this is, and this is not a new position. If anyone is hearing this going, what in the world are they talking about? This doesn't even jive with what I have thought biblically, scripturally. I I can't even see this yet. Um, Well, first off, hang in there. (laughs) This is, this is, this is a lot of, this is, this is, this is wonderful news. Yeah. Um, Even though, yes, we can, we are living through dark times. We might even be living through a period of judgment. I would actually believe, according to Romans 1, I think our nation, our society is probably going through a form of judgment. Um, there's, there's a lot of sin and a lot of sin issues going on within our country today that needs to be repented of. The church itself needs to wake up. I also believe in conjunction with that, waking up to an eschatology that says, wait a minute, we're not just waiting down here to get taken off the planet. We're not just waiting for Christ to destroy all these people that hate us on Twitter and Facebook and all this. We're not, no, we're praying for these people, for these enemies to become gospel friends, to be friends in Christ, to know Christ. If Saul, who was a Pharisee, could become a Christian who killed Christians before he came to know the Lord and the Lord revealed himself to him, then Paul is the chief example by which you name it, can come to know the Lord. Mark Zuckerberg could know Jesus. Now, this is, you know, more in line with praying, uh, what is it, imprecatory? Imprecatory? I'm saying that word wrong. Psalms. That's how it is, yeah. You know, there's two things we pray. First off, when we pray together, we pray for unbelievers to become believers, to know Jesus. That's how we're called to pray. We're called to pray for our leaders of this country, for the leaders of our surrounding area that are around us, our state, etc. We're called to pray for them and for their salvation, that they would know the Lord. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the heart of the Father. However, uh, that being said, there's <laughs> there's a lot of things going on in the Psalms, too, that says, you know, David constantly prays, please destroy my enemies, take them out of the way. So there's two things we pray. One is we pray that they become believers. If that doesn't happen, we do pray the Lord removes them in any way he sees fit. Mm-hmm. I know that was a rabbit trail and probably good for another episode (laughs) to talk about those two things. We started talking about David Livingston. Yes. The modern missionary movement. Talk about that for a minute. So the modern missionary movement was derived out of a heart and an understanding that 
all the nations would turn to the Lord. And they had a very optimistic framework in eschatology when they read scripture. They didn't look at the word. David Livingston became um, a missionary in the 1800s to Africa. Um, William Carey was a missionary in India. And a lot of these guys um, went over there not because they knew they were going to see the influx of the kingdom within their lifetime. In fact, if you read their journals, they knew they weren't going to. They knew that there was, they, they knew that they had a long way to go, but they were like, we know what we're doing. We're laying the groundwork for the kingdom of God to grow and to flourish. They knew that they were doing that. That's why they did it. It wasn't just to make the world a better place. It wasn't just to go over and, oh, let's just hope a few of these people get saved or, or whatever. These were enormous endeavors that we're still, to this day, seeing the fruit of um, because of their optimistic viewpoint that Scripture talks about when it, when it talks about the kingdom of God growing. Yeah. I feel like for us personally, as we're learning about this understanding of Christ's lordship, now, his reigning now, we're going, okay, well, how can we be a part of it? Yeah. Like, what does that look like for us? We might not see that end, but what we do matters. What we do counts. What yes. we do adds to that work. Um, by God's grace, he lets us be a part of it. So what, you know, how can we be a part? How can we declare the truth of God's word yeah. um, in a culture that, hates God, largely hates God. Well, we, yeah. Well, first off, it starts at home. It starts here. It starts with me being uh, a loving, godly husband. It, it's, it, it, it also starts with you being a godly wife, uh, leading our children in, in the word and in prayer, and for them to understand the truth of the gospel, not just from a knowledge level sake, not just, show, not just telling them about the gospel, but showing and living the gospel out. So it's, it's, it starts as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Mm -hmm. You know, it starts here. Um, and Teaching it, our kids the God's standards, living them out ourselves, not complaining, being thankful. Yeah. In all things, being obedient to his word. And yeah, obviously we're not perfect. So when we mess up, repenting before God, apologizing to each other, to them. Yeah. Yeah, continue. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. And I don't know, I think it's cool too, just like as this truth is stirring in our hearts, we're going, okay, God, now what? Anytime we have an idea about something, we're doing it. Or yeah. we see it in the scripture and we're like, oh, God commands that. We need to be obedient. Then we put that into practice. And when you practice the truth that God reveals, then you have like true knowledge of it. Yeah. It becomes a part of you. I've heard Nancy Wilson say that recently, and I've seen that in our own lives when we're like praying, God, show us like what's wisdom, what's obedience here. And then the Lord shows us and we have to do it. Yeah. And when we do it, we have a greater understanding of it because then we're a part of it. Like you have tithing. to put it into practice, like tithing. Yeah. Like if we just went, oh, okay. We think that that's like <laughs> truly in the Bible, God teaches us and we need to do it. And we just like sit back and we don't start doing it. Mm -hmm. Then... Well, one, we're being disobedient, and two, we're not going to have full knowledge of it because we're not being obedient to yeah. it. Yeah. So it's putting those things that we see into practice, and just like in whatever our sphere is in our home, 
with the people right around us, with whatever means that we have, with our gifts, with our talents, we begin to proclaim the word. Yeah. And it's going to take different forms for every believer, but every every Christian can do that. And if every Christian were, you know, in their own household, seeking the Lord, reading the word, praying, leading their family in the truth of God's word, and then whatever in their sphere, doing whatever they can to proclaim the word, like what an influx that would be in, in godliness, what an influx that would be in declaration of who God is. And that would join together and add up to a lot like our everyday faithful obedience to seek the Lord and to the best of our ability, love him, honor him. It impacts. Because oh, yeah. because God makes it impact. Yeah. Not because we're so great, but because he's so great. Absolutely. Like when he t- took 12 men and said, you know, I'm giving to you the commission of spreading the gospel to the world. 12 men who were largely uneducated, who were fishermen. Yeah. Like that was the birth of Christianity. I Go mean, get them, guys. And they did. I mean, you <laughs> And they see, turned the world upside down according see, to the book of Acts. Yeah, I would say you see in the epistles where it says like the whole world has heard this gospel. Yeah. Maybe not every single person, but... The known world at that the time known did. world yeah. at that time had heard yeah. the gospel because they yeah. went far and wide and everywhere yeah. and shared it. Like, it was, the, it was clearly God's power yeah. that spread the gospel through these men and their just diligent obedience, but... God had to do that. Yes. It's not, it's a task too big for 12 men. Well, right now, the task of making disciples, obedient disciples of the all the nations is too hard for the Christians that are on the planet, but not for God. Yeah. Not for God. Yeah. What is the quote that says Christianity is equal to all it has to perform? Who said that? David Livingston. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, he wrote that in his journal. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Revelation 1 through 5. And obviously, it, there's so much to talk about. And there's so much, well, what does this verse mean? What does that verse mean? What does the book of Revelation mean? And we don't, you know, we've already been going on for 45 minutes almost. So we won't, <laughs> we won't continue for now. We'll have another... I'm sure a couple times to talk. Sure. And like some this. resources. And some additional resources. And if, you know, if people have questions or whatever, obviously email us, let us, you know. Yeah, sorry. This is kind of just like a dump. We were in the middle of talking about this and Jesse was like going on. So I'm like, I'm just going to start recording this. I'm always going on. Yeah, I know. But it was good. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right. Revelation 1, 5 says... And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, Conversations with Jesse and Courtney. It is our duty through our schools to create a new one, a God-centered one. 
We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. 